0: Hello everyone, I'm Gary Urbanowitz, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum, the official museum of the FDNY. I need to inform you of the severe financial strain we're currently experiencing at the museum due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Although we reopened in the fall, the decline in visitors and tourism has made a grave impact on our survival. If you believe in our mission to preserve the history of the FDNY, to educate families on being fire safe and celebrate the service of FDNY members to the communities of New York, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to our new crisis recovery fund. Even small donations make a difference. To learn more, go to nycfiremuseum.org donate. Thank you for supporting the New York City Fire Museum during this challenging time. And now, let's get on with the show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, the 1870 appointment of Thomas Never Lose a Man Nevins to Brooklyn's chief of department, the 1916 bombing attack on Black Tom Island by saboteurs, and the 1960 Park Slope and Staten Island plane crashes. When modern day New York City was incorporated, it brought together five New York State counties into one municipality in 1898 and began the consolidation of the fire services of those areas into the FDNY. At the time, there were two other paid fire departments, Brooklyn and Long Island City. In this episode, I want to tell you about one of the chiefs of the Brooklyn Fire Department. Thomas Nevins was an immigrant who was born in Ireland in 1843 coming to the United States with his parents to flee famine and to make a better life. In his youth, he loved the fire department, and when he reached the age of 18, he joined Hope Hose Company Nine of the then-volunteer Brooklyn Fire Department. He rose to the rank of foreman of the company, equivalent of today's captain. When the Brooklyn Fire Department became a paid force in 1869, Nevins was one of the shining stars that was appointed among the first district engineers equivalent to today's battalion chief. He was said to have been an outstanding firefighter and officer playing an important role in organizing the new department. His professionalism was recognized when he was appointed chief of department upon the retirement of chief engineer John Cunningham in November, 1870. He was only 27 years old at the time, perhaps the youngest chief of department in any of the paid departments, even up to present days. Among the firefighters, he was known as Never Lose a Man Nevins. You may also recall from one of our previous podcasts that Chief Nevins was in charge of the historic fire at the Brooklyn Theater in 1876. Like so many New York fire officers, Chief Nevins played a role in National Fire Service matters as well. He was one of the founding members of the National Association of Fire Engineers and served for several years as its treasurer. This organization played a role in the standardization of hose couplings, so that when neighboring fire departments are called for mutual aid, their hoses could be matched with those of the municipality where the fire is. This standard was quickly adopted by the cities of New York and Brooklyn, a step that really paid off after consolidation. After serving as chief for almost 30 years, Devens retired and became an interesting historic figure, though in a completely unrelated field. He bought large tracts of land on Merritt Island in Florida, where he built a hotel. He also began cultivating oranges and is credited with being the first person to export Florida oranges to the rest of the country. The Nevins Fruit Company is the largest and oldest continuously operated citrus company in the country, though no longer owned by the Nevins family. In an ironic twist of history, Mr. Nevins called the St. George Hotel his home in Brooklyn for the rest of his life. This historic hotel was the scene of a dramatic fire that completely gutted it in 1995. It was the largest fire in New York City in more than 20 years at that time, and remains one of the most spectacular blazes in the city's history.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Ted Grant, President of the Board of Trustees of the New York City Fire Museum. As we all know, the world has drastically changed since March 2020. It remains a very difficult time for everyone. At the New York City Fire Museum, our principal sources of revenue have all but disappeared this year. While we normally host nearly 10,000 school children in our fire safety education program, school closures have caused that to cease. We are also visited by about 30,000 other visitors each year many outside the metropolitan area, including firefighters from around the world. But tourism has all but stopped. And we host many events annually for community and other organizations that too has stopped. As a result, the museum is now under severe financial strain in our ability to keep the museum open, which is run by a nonprofit organization established in 1981. Our nonprofit institution is not funded by the FDNY or the city of New York. If you believe in our mission to preserve history, educate children on fire safety and celebrate the heroism of first responders and the contribution of the fire department, please consider making a tax-exempt donation to our new Crisis Recovery Fund at nyCfiremuseum.org backslash donate. It's hard to believe, but the Alliance of American Museums estimates as many as one-third of the nation's museum will be forced to close, due to the unprecedented toll of the pandemic on cultural institutions that depend on visitors, members, and donors to survive. Please don't let the New York City Fire Museum be one of the ones to close. Again, you can support us by going to nycfiremuseum.org backslash donate. Thank you for your generosity, continued support, and for partnering with us to preserve, educate, and celebrate the history and tradition of the FDNY.
0: A battle that was at first called the Great War and the War to End All Wars and eventually came to be known as World War I, began in Europe in 1914. The United States not only stayed out of the fighting, it attempted to play a role in brokering a peace. But American munitions companies were selling their goods to the Allied powers. One depot for ammunition and ordnance was Black Tom Island in New York Harbor. So what and where was this island? Well, it was a landfill project around a rock by the same name that was a hazard to navigation into New York Harbor. Eventually, it became owned and operated by the Lehigh Valley Railroad, with warehouses where goods could be sent out on ships. On July 30th, 1916, there were two million pounds of small arms and artillery ammunition being held in the warehouses of the National Dock and Storage Company, including 100,000 pounds of TNT being held on a barge. Shortly after midnight, several small fires were discovered by guards. Given the potential for a massive explosion, some of the people present evacuated, while others attempted to extinguish the flames. The island was connected via a pier to Jersey City, New Jersey, whose fire department was notified. Two explosions rocked the island shortly after 2 a.m. They were so strong that they equaled somewhere between 5.0 and 5.5 on the Richter scale. Shrapnel and debris rained down on the two other islands closest to Black Tom, Liberty and Ellis Islands. Lady Liberty was peppered with holes. One long-forgotten fact is that up until this event, visitors could climb all the way up to the raised torch in Liberty's hand. But the damage inflicted by this event ended that practice. Thousands of windows were destroyed throughout Manhattan, and the Brooklyn Bridge shook. Alarms went off in firehouses throughout Manhattan and Brooklyn. Many responding companies did not find fires, but rather the massive damage to buildings with glass strewn around the streets. Others encountered numerous small blazes in the streets. For those closest to the southern tip of Manhattan, the source was clearly visible. They say that Brooklyn was bathed in the red glow of the fires on Black Tom. Chief Joseph Martin, who was acting chief of the department that night, received a call advising him of a large amount of burning debris in the harbor, some of which was threatening the Ellis Island Immigration Station. He notified Chief Edward Wirth of the Marine Division and initially dispatched the fireboat New Yorker with the boats Strong and Willett soon to follow. At that time, the Jersey City Fire Department did not have any boats, and since they could not access the inferno and ongoing explosions on the island, it became the job of the FDNY to operate from the water. According to one newspaper account, quote, the boats were almost as though in a battle, end quote. In fact, bullets ripped through the pilot house of the Strong and an unexploded shell went down the stack of the Willet. These were unimaginable conditions for the FDNY. But as always, they rose to the challenge and brought the fires under control. So, how and why did this happen? After a long and thorough investigation that lasted 23 years, it was determined that multiple incendiary devices were purposely planted by German saboteurs, intent on disrupting the flow of munitions to the Allied forces in Europe. Apparently, they did not think that the United States would ever enter the war, or that this attack would encourage us to do so. What became of Black Tom Island? Well, the area between the Jersey City shoreline and the island itself has been filled in and is now all part of Liberty State Park. A commemorative plaque and American flags circle where the island stood in tribute to the Herculean efforts to combat this attack on the United States. The New York City Fire Museum has recently unveiled an exhibit of FDNY Marine Operation artifacts, including several pieces from the fireboats that fought the Black Tom Island fires. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Throwback FDNY podcast. As I mentioned earlier, we need your help. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, our main sources of income have declined significantly. In-person visits, school trips, event space rentals, and shop sales have all been impacted. We are now forced to rely more heavily on the generosity of our supporters. Please donate to the New York City Fire Museum to help us fulfill our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate. Visit nycfiremuseum.org slash donate to learn how you can support us. And now back to the episode. It was a cold winter morning on December 16th, 1960. Just four days before, a nor'easter hit the mid-Atlantic coast, dropping 17 inches of snow on New York City under blizzard conditions. Mounds of snow were still piled in the streets of the five boroughs. At 10.36 a.m., the bells and quarters signaled the transmission of Box 1231 at the corner of 8th and Flatbush Avenues in Brooklyn. So the fire companies being dispatched only had the location, not the nature of the emergency. As the first units arrived, between the smoke from the fires and the steam given off by the warming snow, the scene was totally obscured from the members. It wasn't until they got close that they saw the tail section of an airplane with the name United on it and found a destroyed Douglas DCA passenger plane in the street. Responding units knew that a plane of this size had many people on board and it had struck multiple buildings, many of which were homes, in the Park Slope section of Brooklyn. When Chief John Panarella of Battalion 48 arrived on the scene, he immediately transmitted at all hands. In minutes, it was clear that this was a fifth alarm fire and ultimately, a simultaneous call of a second alarm was transmitted in Manhattan with the units being told to respond to Brooklyn. Unknown to Brooklyn units, another plane was down on Staten Island. However, this one, a TWA Lockheed Super Constellation, crashed in an open area of Miller Field, an Army Air Base. And although on fire, it did not involve any structures. The two planes, one destined to land at Idlewild Airport, now known as JFK International, The other, headed for LaGuardia Airport, collided during their approaches. Firefighters raced to extinguish the blazes and attempted to rescue any survivors. Clearly, the Brooklyn site was the one with the most activity in this regard, with assets from FDNY, NYPD, Department of Hospitals, and others arriving on the scene. 38 hose lines of varying capacity and nozzle configurations were put to work. In all, 31 engine companies, six ladder companies, Three rescue companies and four special apparatus operated in Park Slope. By today's standards, that's not many units to confront an operation of this magnitude. In all, 13 buildings in Park Slope were destroyed or damaged by fire. Needless to say, many lives were lost, including 84 people on the United flight, 44 on the TWA flight, and six on the ground in Brooklyn. Three passengers were found alive on Staten Island, but died at the hospital. There is one survivor found at the Brooklyn crash. An 11-year-old boy was found amongst the wreckage. He was brought to Methodist Hospital where he later succumbed to his injuries. Before he died, he told hospital staff to use the money in his pocket to help whatever other survivors there were. There being none, not to mention that he only had 65 cents, they mounted the coins on a plaque that still hangs in the lobby of the hospital so that this tragedy is never forgotten. And now, it's time for our Throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. In 1957, the FDNY formed a short-lived unit in response to the anxiety and reality of the Cold War. What unit was it? A hint, it was equipped with Geiger counters. The answer can be found in our previous episode and in this month's installment of our companion Throwback FDNY newsletter. You could sign up for our newsletter at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. The Throwback FDNY podcasts are brought to you with help from the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official nonprofit organization of the department. I'm Gary Abanowitz. I'll leave you with this important safety tip. If you leave a building during a fire, close all doors as you exit. This will help contain the fire. If doors are left open, the flames and smoke can travel more quickly. We could all do our part to be a partner to the fire department by promoting fire safety. Thank you and be safe.